following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. first reading is from Psalm 78, starting at verse 1 and reading through to verse 7. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 21 um, and reading from verse 23 uh, down to verse 32. The authority of Jesus questioned. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. 
And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May I speak to the glory of God the Father in the name of God the Son and through the power of God the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple of months ago uh, this year, in July, the Humanist Association issued a rather cross press release complaining about the questions which are due to be asked in the census in March of next year. The basis for their complaint was that the census will include a question, what is your religion? Now that's a question that the Humanist Association don't like because, it says, there's a presumption that people have a religion and therefore it's blatantly unfair, they argue, because such presumptions lead to a higher response to the question than they would like to see. Now, I don't think the humanists need to worry too much, not least because it's a question about religion rather than faith. I think if the census question asked whether people had a faith rather than a religion, then the positive response would have been even higher, not least because I suspect people feel happier admitting they have a faith rather than admitting that they are religious. Perhaps it's one of the reasons why we see increasingly people ticking the box that says spiritual but not religious. Now this was a point made by uh, the commentator Giles Fraser some time ago when he spoke of the number of Christians with a practicing faith who are wary of describing themselves as religious because of the negative connotations associated with being religious rather than faithful. And one of the reasons for that wariness can be found in the Gospels themselves, not least in that part of Matthew's Gospel, uh, the section that uh, we're about to begin, chapters 21 to 24, which focus on Jesus' clash with the religious authorities of the day and the contrast Jesus draws between their teachings and his. Our Gospel reading that Vicky has just read to us is preceded by three events which set the context for the exchange that we read of today. The scholar R.T. France describes the context in which our reading comes like this. The king comes to the capital and in a series of dramatic gestures, the royal ride on the donkey, the expulsion of traders from the temple, and the symbolic cursing of the fig tree, which has produced no fruit. In so doing, he declares both his own messianic authority and also repudiates the existing regime. And the religious leaders respond to this by demanding his authority for such high-handed action. Jesus replies, by linking his authority with that of John the Baptist, whose mission they had similarly repudiated 
And in the parables that follow the one we've read this morning, in a series of three parables, Jesus challenges the right of the official leadership of Israel to their assumed status. They're to be supplanted by those they most despise. They're to lose their tenancy in the Lord's vineyard. And their place at the wedding feast is to be taken by those who are not invited. And finally, in chapter 3, Jesus declares seven woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, exposing their failures as the leaders of the people in uncompromising terms. Blind guides, he calls them. Blind fools. Snakes. Brood of vipers. And even children of hell. Why is Jesus so brutal, so angry, so condemnatory in his attitude towards the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the chief priests? In their desire to follow the law and teach what has been handed down to them, as we heard in the psalm read to us this morning, The religious leaders have lost sight of the reason for the rules which they seek to enforce. They have drawn the circle of righteousness so tightly that they have excluded from it people not like them. The salvation of God meant for all has been restricted to a clique. It's become a club with a large no-entry sign to those not considered good enough or worthy enough to enter in. So let's turn to our gospel reading that Vicky read to us, which comes in two parts and highlights Jesus' teaching and the contrast that he draws between that of the chief priests and his own. First, in verses 23 to 27, we see the chief priests and the elders of the people questioning Jesus about his authority. Now, these questions are not asked in a genuine attempt to seek understanding, but rather they are asked to rebuke. You can almost hear the tone. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to teach like this, to act like this in clearing the temple? to come into our city in the way that you have done. And Jesus responds with a question of his own about the authority of John the Baptist, a question that they are unable to answer through a mixture of pride and fear. Recognising that they had rejected John's teaching and called to repentance, and also unable to say so for fear that their own authority would be diminished. And so in the face of their reply, we do not know where John's authority comes from. Jesus tells them a parable. The parable of the two sons, as I said, is the first in the series of three that Jesus gives to contrast the actions of the religious leaders with those who may would view as being unworthy to even enter the temple. Now, as a standalone text, 
it's perfectly possible to read this parable as underscoring that part of the letter of James that declares that faith without deeds is dead. As one commentator notes in their reading of this parable, doing the will of the Father for Jesus is more than simply a matter of words. It's always a matter of deeds. It's one thing to say one does or will do the will of the Father, but it's another thing to actually do it. Words alone mean nothing. What might a modern version or illustration of this parable look like, I wonder? Perhaps it might be a president who takes the decision to clear the streets of the capital city with tear gas and state troopers and to arrest those calling for justice outside a church so that he can stand in front of it with a Bible raised in his hand. The picture presented suggests he says yes to God. He says yes to God his Father through raising the Bible. But in fact, through his very actions, he does the exact opposite of what the Bible speaks of. While those who were stood on the steps of the church moments earlier are arrested for civil disobedience or watch on through watering eyes or choking lungs, processing the tear gas. Jesus' own explanation of the parable points to something more than this interpretation, something more than the hypocrisy to be found in the gap between words and deeds. The explicit contrast Jesus makes in verse 32 is between two groups of people, those considered unworthy by the religious authorities, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, on one hand, and the religious authorities themselves on the other, who consider themselves to be the guardians of the truth. The contrast between those who run the temple and those who followed John the Baptist into the desert, away from the temple, where they discovered repentance, salvation and mercy. Some uh, years ago, my job running communications for the Church of England included visiting theological colleges and running training courses for ordinance on media relations. I particularly remember one of those sessions at a college which shall remain nameless, although I'm delighted to say it wasn't Cranmer Hall, uh, just round the way, uh, where I was talking about the benefits to be found in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ using the mass media of the opportunities to be found in radio, television or newspapers, even tabloids. A proposition which I thought would be largely uncontroversial. But on this occasion, the suggestion to go, to preach where the people are, to meet them where they gather, was met with solid resistance. Why should we? They asked. We shouldn't need to go there. 
We shouldn't need to go to places like the Sun or the Daily Mail, they sneered. There's no need to sully the gospel message in that way. If people want to know the truth, they said, they know where we are. All they need to do is to come into church. That training session was a reminder to me that Jesus' message to the religious leaders of his day remains as relevant, vital and urgent to us as a church today. Not only to those of us who sport dog collars, but to all of us. At the heart of this parable, and in the two parables that follow, is a warning against pride and an invitation to humility, a reminder that God's grace is an open invitation for all people to come to his table in recognition that like the first son in the parable, we may well get it wrong, but the opportunity to turn again to the will of our Father is always open to us, no matter who we may be. But it's a decision that's only open to us if we recognise that we are a people, that we are individuals who are in need of forgiveness. Because an unrepentant heart needs no mercy. And the path to an unrepentant heart is pride. The late New Testament scholar John Stott once wrote, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. C.S. Lewis, similarly, in his book Mere Christianity, wrote, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And this is the sin we see at work in the religious leaders who Jesus takes to task in our reading this morning. This is the characteristic which renders, renders them as whitewashed tombs, as snakes, as vipers, as children of hell. And if the path to an unrepentant heart is pride, then surely the pathway to a grateful heart is humility, the contrasting characteristic to be found in our reading. The humility of the tax collectors and prostitutes contrasted with the religious leaders. The tax collectors and prostitutes 
who knew themselves to be so desperately in need of grace that they were able to come to it and receive it. The great church father of the Eastern Orthodox Church, John Chrysostom, puts it this way. Nothing is like humility. Humility is the mother, the root, the nurse, the foundation and bond of all good things. How can one extinguish pride? By knowing God. For if we know him, all pride is banished. The former Bishop of Maidstone, Graham Cray, put it this way when speaking at Soul Survivor. Humility is not minimising your gifts and abilities. Humility is knowing what God wants and going for it with all that you're worth and admitting your weakness, your failures and your mistakes along the way. Central to humility is being fully open and honest before God as to who we are. And at first blush, that sounds easy. After all, who else am I going to be other than myself? But my friends, we all wear masks. Sometimes for others, sometimes for ourselves. Sometimes we wear masks because we're ashamed of what we carry around inside. Ashamed, perhaps, of what we have done or what has been done to us. And very often, we can bury these things deep because it's easier to hide behind a mask. We don't like going to those places and certainly we don't want others going there. But the message of grace is that whoever we are, whatever we have done, we never get to say, but God doesn't want to know someone like me. He can't love someone like me. He can't use someone like me. We never get to say that. Because the message of grace, not only in this parable, but in the other parable Jesus told of a father and his two sons, we know the grace of God is boundless. Throughout the Bible, we see time and again God building his kingdom and revealing his character through people who are useless in the eyes of the world or who consider themselves ill-equipped or unworthy to the task. But it turns out, my friends, and thank God for it, that God has a soft spot for people who get things wrong or who mess things up. I began uh, earlier on talking about uh, the past uh, couple of days and the way uh, churches up and down the country have celebrated the ordinations of new clergy uh, in the church. I want to end this morning with some advice to the clergy of the Diocese of Durham, written many years ago by Michael Ramsey when he was Bishop of Durham. It was a letter he wrote to the clergy called Five Helps for the New Year. 
But these helps are not for the clergy alone. And I commend each of the five of them to you this morning as we think about what we have heard. Help one. Thank God. Often and always. Thank him carefully and wonderingly for your continuing privileges and for every experience of his goodness. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. Help two. Take care about the confession of your sins. As time passes, the habit of being critical about people and things grows more than each of us realises. Help three. Do not worry about status. There is only one status that our Lord bids us to be concerned with, and that is our proximity to him. If someone serve, let them follow me, for where I am, there also shall my servant be, he writes. That is our status, to be near our Lord, wherever he may ask us to go with him. Help four, use your sense of humour. Laugh at things. Laugh at the absurd absurdities of life. Most importantly, laugh at yourself. Help five. Be ready to accept humiliations. They can hurt terribly, but they can help keep you humble. Whether the humiliations are trivial or big, accept them. All these can be so many chances to be a little nearer to our Lord. For there is nothing to fear if you are near to the Lord and in his hands. Let's pray. Father God, would you enable us this day to take off the masks that we wear before you, to recognise our need of you, to come to you in humility and trusting in you. Renew in us thankful hearts that we may ever keep our eyes fixed on your Son and live in gratitude for your boundless love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.